It is a joy. Um, it is a big responsibility. Uh, and we are very excited. We've got 10 full days left uh, before we fly out. Um, we have, we've been given all of our money. We're actually, at this point, overfunded. Um, so hopefully that you know, works out well, which is good. So praise God for that. We've got... Yeah, we'll have some back. Okay. No, maybe not. Um, we'll, we'll hold on. Uh, and we've got uh, an apartment lined up. We're getting, I'm getting my reading list um, during the week of things I've got to do and lots of courses to go through. So heaps of work to do, but very excited, very grateful for all of you. Uh, we're going to miss you so much. Uh, we love this church. Uh, our lives have changed from coming to this church. Uh, and so it's such a blessing to be sent out from this church to come back. Uh, and so would you be praying for us as you have been? We're in the book of James, and you might have your little booklet too that um, we got made up. That thing is really good. That is so good. And that's going to help you to write down notes, um, faith that works. We're in sermon number two, James chapter one, verses five through eight. You've got the, the row, which is what you're in now. So you're you're listening, you can take notes, what is God going to teach you through his word? Then you've got the the circle, which is things you might want to think through when you're in community settings. And then you've got the chair, which is the symbol, which is kind of talking through when you're just alone with God, what what are you going to ask him? What are you going to talk about? What are you going to meditate on? Uh, They're the kind of three things we're using for this series. And so if that blesses you, use it. Um, If you don't have one of those and you want one, speak to Brendan. He'll hook you up or get you a PDF. Why don't we read James chapter 1 together, verses 1 through to 8. All right, make sure your phone's on flight mode. James. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts It's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord God, we come humbly before you and ask that you would help us this morning. Help us to listen to your word. Soften our hearts. Quieten our minds. Remove distraction. Lord, you love those and you look to those who tremble before your word and have a humble and contrite spirit. May we be that as a church this morning, through the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of your name. Would you give us wisdom for every trial? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you about Suzanne. Suzanne wrote this. 15 years ago, my world fell apart. I fell ill physically, mentally, relationally, financially, and more. May 26, 2003, Suzanne 
come downstairs from lying in bed. She was feeling ill. She was calling up the after-school care for her son. And as she was on the phone at about 6 p.m., she fainted right in front of her seven-year-old son, hit the ground. Her two elder sons were nearby and they rushed into the room. The younger son was freaking out. They called the ambulance, ran across the road to get a neighbor who was confused. They didn't know what was happening. Ambulance came. She was taken to hospital. She was in hospital for a couple of days and was soon sent home by the emergency department. They thought she was fine. On the way home, she fainted and was sent back to hospital. When she arrived back at hospital, the ED said to her, oh, just have a sandwich, you'll be fine, and sent her back. Four days later, home visit from the GP, she's still not well. He suspects that she has pneumonia. She's readmitted into hospital, and it turns out that she had severe pneumonia in her left lung. She was critically ill. They gave her treatment, antibiotics, and then sent her home and said, you'll be fine in two weeks. Well, for several months, she did not get better, but she had to return to work despite her fatigue and sickness. Her husband was unemployed at the time, and she had to take that burden. Eventually, her husband got a job in Melbourne, and so her three teenage, or two teenage sons and one young child, they were at home while the husband was in Melbourne every week. But she was still really ill, trying to work, trying to keep the family together, trying to do all the jobs that a normal uh, uh, person has to do. But everything was fraying at the edges. Everything was becoming complicated and exhausting. She didn't have any answers, but eventually she got diagnosed with a syndrome called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's a problem with your heart. It gives you chronic fatigue-like symptoms, but everything you do becomes extremely difficult. It's like doing everything four times. So if if you go from sitting down to standing up, it's like doing it four times. If you go driving somewhere, it's like doing the drive four times. Everything is like times four. So her energy was expended, and her mind was fraying, and her life was falling apart. Sometime later... She was admitted into a mental hospital because she wasn't coping. She found some relief, some help in that time. But she missed many things. Sporting events, award ceremonies at school, performances and more. And being an incredible mum, this broke her heart. She felt like a failure. And this process continued, doctor to doctor, treatment to treatment, medication to medication, sickness to sickness. And she wrote this, and today the situation remains pretty much the same. It is very difficult to be joyful, to delight, to persevere, to be wise to be faithful in these circumstances. And in this room, we all have stories of trial. Whether you've just walked through something and you're on the other side, or you're presently in a trial, or as sparks fly up, trouble falls, you're likely to be in one soon. Sickness comes divorce, death of a child or a family member, failure at school, abandonment of friends, family, loss of income perhaps or employment, the loss of property, failed life expectations, and the list goes on. And you can be tempted when you hear like Suzanne's story, you think, oh, I don't have trials in comparison, but 
The passage says trials of various kinds. Don't belittle your trial. It's not the severity of a trial that makes it a trial. It's the reality of it. And everyone experiences things at a different way. So if you're a human being in this room, which I hope most of us are, trials are going to come. And this passage is for you. And when trials come, in the face of stealing C.J. Mahaney's words here, in the face of painful and perplexing and perhaps prolonged trials, what do you do? How do you get through it? You see, you might, you might respond in two ways. Way number one, you might just look at what's going on or you look at a trial of someone else and you think, this is just a mess. How is anything good coming from this? This is a mess. What are you doing, God? Or you might see a trial, be in a trial, and you know the message from last week. You know that God has purpose for you in trials. The trials are instruments from God for our maturity. You know that trials lead to perfection. They lead to maturity. But you just don't know what to do. So whether you're looking at your trial and you think, it's a mess, I don't know what's God doing. Or you're looking at a trial and you think, I just don't know what to do. God has an answer for you today. In his scriptures. An incredible answer but a simple one. What do we do in the face of trials? Let's read James chapter 1, verse 5 again. Well, let's read verse 4 too. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom let him ask god what do we do in the face of trials very simply today seek wisdom from god seek wisdom from god it sounds too easy there's this Difference, I think, in our hearts between what we want and what God says we need. We want salvation from a trial. We want deliverance from a trial. We want answers specifically, why this, Lord? But what we need, according to God, is wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God. You see, here's the link between last sermon and today. You can't shortcut maturity. You can't shortcut Christian growth. And so God, in his sovereign goodness and in his plan, sends trials as instruments to form us and mature us and change us. That's the purpose of trials. They're not God's punishment to you. They're not God just having fun because he was bored. And they're not out of his control. They're there to mature us and we can't shortcut them. We have to go through them. And when you're going through a trial, the thing that you need, or the thing that you want is to get over it and just have an answer. But the thing that you need is wisdom. The ability to know how to walk through the trial. Because you can't shortcut it. If you end the trial, you lose the growth. If you want the growth, you've got to get the trial. And to walk through it, you've got to have wisdom. So here's the point of the passage in a somewhat simple sentence. In order to rejoice, mature, and endure... 
through trials. We need wisdom from God to see the world and live in the world his way. Otherwise, we will be unstable in all our ways. I'm going to read that again. I think it'll help you. In order to rejoice and mature and endure through trials, we need wisdom from God to see the world his way and to live in the world his way. Otherwise, we will be unstable in all our ways. Let me show you how I get that from the text. Point number one, wisdom. Let's look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. Notice how in verse 4 it talks about that we'll be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. The way James kind of introduces new things in his book is he takes a word and then uses it in the next sentence and then builds upon it, then takes other words and builds upon them. So the word that he uses to make the link between the purpose of trials and what we need in trials is this word lack. If any of you lacks wisdom, and the assumption here in that verse is that we're probably all going to be that person. I don't know if anyone would be bold enough to come up on stage and say, in the face of Charles, I like no wisdom. I've got it. I've got it covered. Just ask me. I'm the font of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, just If you need anything, just call me. I've got it. We might act like that, but I don't think genuinely anyone would want to say that. The assumption here is that we all lack wisdom. I know I do, uh, and I know many of you do because I have conversations with you about and I hear about conversations, and I think that's a beautiful and humble thing about our church is that people are willing to admit that. So the assumption here is that we probably all lack wisdom, but then you might think, what what is this wisdom? What does this word mean? Now, wisdom is a massive concept throughout the whole of the Bible, and particularly in James's letter. Uh, wisdom, according to Douglas Moo, is this. Wisdom is the means by which the godly can both discern, which means to see and understand, and carry out the will of God. So wisdom is the means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. Or to put another way, wisdom is seeing the world God's way and living in the world God's way. Wisdom is seeing the world God's way and living in the world God's way. I was at the footy on Thursday night and I, w- I was thinking about the sermon because I just, that's how I process it. I'm just always thinking about it. And there was an advertisement from ANZ. I was at ANZ Stadium, so that's not unsurprising. But there was a big advertisement, very simple, nice, you know, graphic design. And it said, ANZ, your world, your way. Very interesting, because I had this thought in my head, I was thinking about this sermon, and, and even the, the Hillsong United have got a new song out called Wonder, where it says, I see the world your way. And I thought about that, that is just completely the complete opposite of what we just read in James chapter 1, verse 5, and it's the opposite meaning of godly wisdom. A and Z wisdom, it's your world, it's your way. Take it, do whatever you want, make it happen, versus... It's God's world. Live his way. And you can weigh up in your life which one you think works better. You can figure it out. I can't make that decision for you, but I'm going to try and show you in the text today how God's world and God's way works heaps better. You see, seeing the world God's way begins with fear in God. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, Solomon says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Respecting God as the authority. Realizing that God is the creator. 
humbling yourself before God, knowing that you are creature, he is creator. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't be godly wise if you don't fear the Lord. Because if you don't fear the Lord, when it comes to the pressure point of trials, my world, my way. Sorry, God. You won't do it. You won't follow his way. You have to first worship the Lord, fear the Lord, and then you can see the world his way. Being able to see the world his way needs, well, you need, I need, to be able to see the world through his word. See, God has already revealed so much wisdom to us in his scriptures that it's not like this secret thing. Like, you know, seek wisdom, ask God for wisdom, and you're going to look in your cup of tea, and you're going to see a shape, and then you're going to know what to do. It's not going to happen like that. Oh, it might, I don't know, but it most likely isn't going to happen like that. Seeing the world God's way, he's already revealed so much, and so much about trial. Believing them and trusting in his promises is at one thing, but seeing them, they're there. Like Romans 8, verse 28. Imagine if we could see the world with this lens. And I, don't, I really don't offer this as a, just a, a trite verse, just to apply to your trial. I think this is the grid verse that makes sense of everything. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So, what is wisdom? The first thing about wisdom is seeing the world his way. To be able to see the world through his grid, through his mind, through his order, with him at the top, us as creature. Point two under what is wisdom. Wisdom is living in the world God's way. You know the old, um, you know, oh, I don't know. I remember when I was about 15, my dad once said to me, well, what's wisdom? And I was like, yes, because I, I found out the, that old analogy. Um, n- knowing something is different to wisdom, right? So you could know that tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. You can know Romans 8.28 is true, but wisdom is knowing how to live in the midst of a trial like it's true. Wisdom is seeing the world God's way, but wisdom is also living in the world God's way. James chapter 3, verse 17 talks about wisdom from above like this. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. See how wisdom is personified in action? Alec Mottier says this, If we say about someone, he knows his Bible really well, so far we have described a knowledgeable person. But if he also knows how to use his Bible to understand life and the world around him and to guide his own conduct and the conduct of others in the mess of life's problems, then knowledge has passed over into wisdom. Isn't that so good? You probably know people who know the Bible, but they don't know how to live it. I wonder if you're one of those people, or used to be one of those people. I think I used to be one of those people till I came to this church. And I remember January 2014, Dave was preaching on Psalm 1, a very similar message um, to what he preached a couple of weeks ago. And I remember just being shocked that the the blessed man does the word or the blessed man acts on the word. That wisdom isn't just this maturity of knowledge, theological knowledge, it's actually knowing how to apply it and live it. So, wisdom isn't just a set of things that we can know, um, ideas, human perspective. It isn't mere knowledge. It isn't even... Like, you know, there's some people who just know how to, like, get a car at the cheapest price. And it's not that. That's not wisdom. That's not godly wisdom. That's not the wisdom that James is talking about here. The wisdom that James is talking about here is seeing the world his way and living in the world his way. And what we need in a trial, in the mess and the, you know, the perplexity 
And the pain of trials is wisdom. We need to know how to live through it. We need to read his word. We need community too. We need others to help us. So what do you do if you lack wisdom? If if you're going through a trial or a trial comes to you and you're like, I don't know what to do. Well, the passage is really simple. Uh, You know, we could do this passage really quickly. And I I said to Dave, I've got maybe a 10-minute sermon. Last time I said I want an hour and a half. Today I'm like, i got 10. But I think God has actually got heaps in this text to pull out. But it is very simple. James says this, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? Let him ask God. Profoundly simple, but surprisingly, we forget to do it. Trials come, bad situations happen, horrible things go on, and we try and figure it out. We search on Google, we talk to friends, we we go back to past advice, and we realize that you're halfway through a trial and you haven't actually got on your knees and said, God, help, give me wisdom. Show me what to do. I'm your willing servant. Show me and I'll do it. Just give me that wisdom. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. The word ask there is, um, I've been learning a little bit of Greek. And I'm, I, actually, I had to learn English grammar too, because I didn't know English grammar. Because they thought it was a great idea in New South Wales to teach us functional grammar. So we just learn how to recognize it, but we don't know any of the rules um, which is maybe good for everyone else, but if I want to study Greek, I've got to know it. Anyway, the word ask there is in the present continuous form of the verb, which means asking, continually asking for wisdom. It's not just this one-off trial comes, dear God, give me wisdom, and move on for the next 17 years of your life through sickness and pain because you asked for wisdom once. James is kind of saying, keep asking, keep asking, keep asking. And who do we ask? We ask God. We ask God. We're so quick to ask others to look to Dr. Google, to do you know, what they recommend in best-selling books. But his recommendation here is look up, ask God. And the hard thing about trials is that when we get to them, most likely most humans want to take control in that moment. We want to sort it out. We want to get it together. Okay, this has gone wrong. I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this. I'm going to talk to this, but I'm going to make this happen. But notice what James says. He says, ask God. The the active thing that we do is asking. But that sort of puts us in this passive situation where we have to receive from outside of us. And that can be hard for our pride. That can be hard for our humanity and our sin is to actively go, God, help. And passively, we then totally rely on him to answer. Wisdom is a gift, not something you earn or something you figure out, but it's a gift from God. So will he really give it? Well, keep reading. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Isn't that incredible? You're in a trial. The one thing you need is wisdom. You're commanded to ask for it. And then you're given a promise that God is a generous God who gives out wisdom generously. Literally, the text says, the giving God. That's how God is defined in this little section. Ask the giving God who gives generously. Isn't that a beautiful attribute that you've experienced so much of in God? He's a giving God. He's a grace-giving God. He's a good father that loves to give gifts to his children. Again, I'm going to quote Alec Motier. He says this, No no one attribute expresses all that is true about God, but each expresses something about him that is true all the time. When we come with our prayers, he never replies, come back tomorrow. Perhaps then I'll be able to be the giving God again. But today, I must occupy myself with being something else. And 
giving is not the whole truth about God, but it is ceaselessly true. He is more than giving, but he is always giving. Isn't that incredible? Imagine if it was different. Like genuinely, imagine if you go to God, you're in the midst of the hardest moment of your life, and you say, God, give me wisdom, and you don't know if he's going to say yes. So often we assume what God is going to do, because we know he's so good, but don't assume it for a second. James doesn't want us to assume it. He wants to imply it actively in your mind. Turn on. Think of God. He's a giving God. He's a giving God. He's a giving God all the time. No matter what trial or circumstance, I can go to him. So what does it look like when we ask him? Well, he gives us wisdom to see the world his way, to know how to live in the world his way. It's not some secret He's given us his word. He's given us community. Someone in this church who's incredibly good at seeking wisdom is uh, one of our pastors, Patrick Chavez. He's incredible. Uh, he really is so wise. I respect him so deeply. I go to him all the time for wisdom. And then the other day he took me out for coffee to ask for my wisdom, <laughs> which maybe was not a wise thing to do, but he asked for my wisdom because he wanted my perspective on a situation. He wanted to see what I thought of it because wisdom is humble. Wisdom looks around and says, you've probably seen something or you might know something that I don't know. God might help you to help me. So we've got his word, we've got community, but we need to humble ourselves and ask. If you go to life group and you're going through a trial and they don't know. If you come to church each week and you're going through a trial and no one knows, perhaps you're going to be missing out on the wisdom that you've been asking God for. Because God tends to use not tea leaves, but his church. But who gets this wisdom? Well, keep reading. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. To all. There's no distinction based on godliness or class or tenure or intellect. All. Look around the room. Genuinely, actually. Look around. Every single person in this room, if you ask God, for wisdom, in faith, he will give it to you. There's no distinction. You've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years. You blew it this week or you were really holy this week. No distinction. But I've already asked him. I've already sorted it out. Will he really give it again? Let's finish the verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. That means without chiding or condemning. You come to him and he doesn't go, you asked for wisdom yesterday. He doesn't do that. He's like, yes, I get to do it again. I'm the giving God. I get to give again. It gives him joy. And what's the result? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Isn't that incredible? A pure and unqualified promise. You will. I don't say this in my authority. I say it in the authority of the word of God. You will receive the wisdom that you need. And the result is not deliverance from your trial. This verse, you know, it's interesting that James says in the midst of trials, he doesn't actually say ask for deliverance, ask for salvation, ask for freedom. And you can ask those things, but he says ask for wisdom and you will get it. You'll be able to walk through a trial with maturity, with godliness. You'll be able to know how to live, how to be holy, how to be righteous, how to honor God. See, the wisdom we need, we're going through a trial. It's going to mature us. We need wisdom so we can come to church and not live our life based on our circumstance. Wisdom says worship. Wisdom says love. Wisdom says to give even when you don't have much. Wisdom says to trust even when it looks like everything's going wrong. 
Wisdom says to forgive. Wisdom says to go against the passions which are at war in your flesh and to trust that the way that God has outlined in his word is the best way, even if it means you will lose out, even if it means you will incur more trial, more trial if you follow his way sometimes. We follow a crucified saviour, do we not? So in order to rejoice and mature and endure through trials, we need, what do we need? Wisdom. Wisdom to see the world his way, to live in the world his way. But if we're honest, that may not feel like the most satisfying answer. It can be very, very difficult in the midst of trial to be satisfied with wisdom, to be satisfied with God's way can be very difficult in the midst of whatever your trial is to trust him. And that's why James continues in the rest of the couple of verses to give us a warning. Point one, wisdom. Point two, warning. Verse six. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded way, man, unstable in all his ways. Here's the warning. If you break allegiance with God, and trust in yourself or the world, you will not receive wisdom. But instead, you will have an unstable life, being tossed and turned by every wind and wave of trial. It's a warning. James is a skillful pastor. He's been doing the job a while. He knows us. He knows people. And he knows that we are going to be so tempted to not trust in God's way and live his way. And so he warns them. He warns them to not break allegiance with God. You see, let me explain what these verses mean, because at first they might be a little bit unsettling. So God sincerely wants to give us wisdom in fact, the verse there about God, it actually uses this idea of God as single-minded or single-eyed, which means he's sincerely, that's all he wants to do. He wants to give generously. But then James calls into question our sincerity in the midst of a trial. You see, James is calling out whether or not we actually want his way or not. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Motir again quotes this, Faith is our absolute confidence that he will give what we ask. Doubting is our own inner uncertainty about whether we really want him to give it or not. Isn't that, isn't that good? That makes sense of the passage for me. Faith says, I trust you, I need you, I follow you. Whatever your world, it's your way, I'm going. Doubt says, hmm, really? The word here is not like um, unsure or being uncertain about everything to do with God. It's not saying if you have any doubts about any doctrine, you will never get any wisdom. That's not what it's saying. Okay, so don't read that into the passage. The word doubt here is a word which means deciding between two alternatives. You, you haven't made up your mind yet. You're between two minds. For instance, um, I doubt about what is the best way to fix my back. And, and uh, like I used to go to an osteo, I've been to a physio, and then I started going to a chiro. But maybe it should be acupuncture or just a roller or just a lot of neurofin. 
I am deciding between alternatives about what way is the best way to fix my back. And that's the, that's the word doubt. It means deciding between alternatives. And that's a trivial example, but now apply it to God. You're in a trial. You want wisdom. It gets revealed to you. And then you go, but do I really want your way, God? You know, I can say, Maddie Lick, she's starting to be a chiro. I can say, I don't want chiropractic. I want Brendan. I want physio. <laughs> and, you know, no harm. They, you know, she's going to spend like the next seven years of her life studying it. But nonetheless, we'll, we'll still be mates. But if I turn to God and say, no, nah, not your way, I shouldn't suppose that I will get anything I want from him, especially not wisdom. That's what James is saying. To make it even more clear, he uses another word. Double-minded in verse 8. He is a double-minded man. Literally, that word means two-souled. Two-souled. Not two-faced, you know, hypocrisy. Not that. Two-souled, i.e. facing both ways. Ligon Duncan says this. Double-mindedness is a person who's trying to live in two worlds at the same time. This present world which will pass away and the age to come. The person who is double-minded both wants the goals and desires of this world and the goals and desires of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ at the same time. I think that's a tough one for us. Tough one for me at times. With God's wisdom, there comes a dividing line. The way of this world or the way of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Whoever wants to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it. double-minded. Jesus also said this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Why? Why can't you? Why can't you be double-minded? Why can't you doubt and move between alternatives? Why can't you go a bit of the world today, a bit of God tomorrow, a bit of the world for this decision, a bit of God for this one? Maybe God gets my Sundays, but he doesn't get my wallet, or whatever your trial, whatever your circumstance. Why can't we do that? Well, James gives us two consequences. Consequence one, verse seven says this. That person must not suppose you will receive anything from the Lord. If you're double-minded, if your heart is always jumping back into bed with the world, if you're following Christ, you will not receive wisdom. I don't know any other way to say it than the way James said it. And the second consequence is this, verse 6 and 8. You'll be unstable in all your ways. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. What James is saying here is that if you doubt, if you're double-minded, if you're always second-guessing God and going back to your natural instinct, back to the wisdom of the world, back to Dr. Google, back to the self-help, it's not saying you can't get help from other things, but when there comes the dividing line between God's way and the world's way, and you choose the world's way, you will be like a wave. Not a wave crashing onto the shore, but think wave out at sea. Has no foundation, has no form. The winds come, it changes shape. Another wind comes, it changes shape. And it moves and it's buffeted around by every single circumstance. If you are double-souled, that's what James is saying will happen. You'll have instability. You won't walk his way. 
You won't experience maturity. You won't be able to count your trial a joy. Dave said last week, quoting Tim Keller, that trials will either make you or break you. You go the world's way, in the long run, between you and God, it will break you. It's a sober warning. So how do you know if you're this person? Well, when trials come, what does your life look like? James is a good preacher, gives us an analogy. Test yourself. I tested myself. I felt like as you write sermons, like you think about the congregation and then you wake up and you go, oh, what about me? (laughs) And as I thought about this, there's been many times in my life where I actually have just, I've gone, "Uh, whatever, this, I'm just, I'm going to follow the parenting advice of what I found on Google. I've done it. And we were unstable. We were tossed to and fro by every article and every blog post. And we didn't have stability in our parenting. We didn't trust the counsel and wisdom of our dear friends and pastors. They gave us good wisdom and we thought... And I experienced instability and I hated it. What about you? When trials come, what do you look like? Have you felt yourself slowly doubting his goodness? Have you left God's best and given up? Do you know what you should do, but you don't do it because you don't want to live his way? Instead of looking up, do you look within or around? but you avoid his word and his community to help you. Well, what do you do if you're that person? What do you do if you you feel the tug, the chains of the world pulling you, the fear that you have in your trial, that God won't do good, that he won't? What do you do in that circumstance? Well, I have good news for you. The Bible is a Bible of good news. It has hard words, but good news. You don't have to stay in that path. You don't have to be a wave tossed to and fro by the circumstances of life. You don't have to be that way. You can be something different. You can be steadfast and immovable. You can be like a cruise liner on the wave, a backbone, a rudder, direction, being swept along by the Holy Spirit. You can be that. That's the promise of this passage. You don't have to be the other. You can be that. And the giving God wants you to be that. James picks up this theme of double-mindedness in his fourth chapter, and he says this, and it's a promise to you, and it's my, my plea. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. If you're someone here today, you're not yet following Christ, or you are following Christ, but you're feeling that double mindedness, that two souled, that doubt, and you're seeing the instability of your life, James pleads with you draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Bottom out, why don't I trust God? Why do I keep going back there? Why, why am I bottom that out? Seek wisdom on that. Talk to your life group leader. Ask, why do I keep on going back to this path? Bottom it out. But then, repent. Change your double-mindedness. And say again, God, you are king. I will trust you no matter what. But how do I know? How do I know that God will answer that prayer? How can I know that God will draw near to you if you draw near to him? Because really, he probably shouldn't. Like if God was like us, and we kept on, like if someone keeps on hurting you and hurting you and hurting you and rejecting your wisdom, rejecting your wisdom, rejecting wisdom, what do you end up doing? 
stop giving them wisdom, and you withdraw. How do we know that God isn't going to be like that? Go back to verse 5. Let him ask the giving God who gives generously to all. We know who he is. He's a giving God. And wisdom helps us to see the world his way. And here's a great perspective that you need. He already gave. Galatians chapter 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God gave. He sent forth his son into the greatest trial you could ever imagine. The wrath of God was laid on him on the cross. All of our sin and all of our folly and all of our shame was laid on him. All the bad consequences of our silly decisions are laid on him so that when you draw near to God... He has no anger. He has no wrath. He does not reproach. He does not chide you. He draws near to you. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? Imagine if it was the other way, but it isn't. You draw near to God, even if you've been living a foolish life, and he will draw near to you because he loves you. And if you are in Christ, you are a son and daughter of God. You are not defined by your trials. You're not defined by your consequences. You're defined by his love because he is a giving God and he gave his son for you and you and you and you and all of us who put our faith in Christ. He has nothing but love for you. He wants your best. I want to return to the story of Suzanne. Fifteen years ago, my world fell apart. I fell physically ill, mentally, relationally, financially, and more. And today, the situation remains pretty much the same. It's very difficult to be joyful, to delight in perseverance, to be wise, to be faithful in these circumstances. Listen to this, though. Would I turn back the clock if I could, she says. Would she go back to 2003 and turn back the clock and turn off the trial? Would she do that? The answer is a resounding no, she says. The Lord has blessed me abundantly in this period of infirmity. I've truly learned what it means to daily rely on Him. He's given me a real depth of understanding of faith, lived out daily, hanging on by a thread, straining to hear His voice, alongside amazement and gratitude by His meeting my needs. When you have nothing left in your own strength, she says, you can turn to the Lord or away. There was never an option for me. He graciously allowed me to know deep in my soul that he was truly my my loving father and my savior. Did I just smile and sail through? Not at all. I cried tears of pain and frustration. And so I turned to the Psalms for strength and I felt solidarity with the psalmist pleased to the Lord. I battled with and still do today the dark shadows of depression and anxiety. He alone understands and keeps me safe. I learned to accept help from others and the blessing it gives both ways. I've learned the value of real friendship. I've learned to accept gratefully the loving people God has put into my life to help me overcome many hurdles and to let go of unsafe relationships, to forgive others and myself. Only possible by Jesus. Each day I I wake up and I wonder, how can I be any use to the Lord? How can I serve you, Lord? I ask for help to get through the day. I ask for guidance. But most of all, I ask for wisdom, which is essential for every aspect of life and faith. I don't know if you could say these words. Would I turn back the clock? No. For I would not be living the real life of faith that I am today. 
I don't want the half-life that I thought was enough. And I look forward to the day the clock is turned forward to the time here or in heaven when I'm both healed and made complete and mature, not lacking anything. This is a story of trial. This is a story of a woman who's put her faith in God in the trial. She hasn't lived it perfectly. And I know this story because this is my mum. I've seen, I've seen James Bond play out. It's true. If you persevere, if you endure, if you seek wisdom, if you count it joy, this can be your story. And James leaves us with a promise in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 12. And I texted this to my mom because I wanted to encourage you. I said, this is what the Word of God says. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love me. You will win. Just not in this life. All the sickness, all the sadness, all the brokenness, all the trial, all the loss will be part of His tapestry of love and grace. And one day you will stand before Him if you're in Christ and he will, He'll put a crown on your head, the crown of life. And death will be swallowed up and dissolved and destroyed. And you will live life and that of abundance. Let me encourage you, Sovereign Grace Church. In order to mature and endure through trials and rejoice in them, we need wisdom from God. Seek that wisdom. Pray for that wisdom. To see the world His way. And to live in the world His way. Otherwise, we will be unstable in all our ways. Church, don't give up. Don't settle for the world. Don't doubt. Don't be double-minded. Count it pure joy. See His maturing work. Pointed out in others. My mom was shocked when I was talking to her about this. Because she doesn't see it in herself. We need each other to identify where God is maturing us. Because in a prolonged and painful and perplexing trial, we're probably not going to see it. Endure to the end. And one day you'll be face to face with Him. the ever-giving God and you will wear a crown of righteousness and a crown of life and you will see him who gave his life for you. We're going to pray now for wisdom and some of you might need to pray and repent and I'm going to give you time for that as the band comes up. And then we're going to sing a song called Anchor and this song is an incredible song because you can turn this song into a prayer and a declaration for your life. Why don't you pray with me? You can let my prayer be your prayer if you need it. God, I need wisdom. Help me to see the world your way and help me to live in the world your way. God, there's a war in my soul. My double soul, my double mind, my doubt. God, I change my mind. 
I want your way. I want your grace. I need your wisdom. I'm sorry. Restore me. Help me to count it joy. Help me to mature. Help me to endure. I love you, Lord. Thank you for loving me. Amen. Why don't you please stand and sing?